realize that the reason that many of us are isolated or lonely or discouraged or frustrated is because we keep doing the opposite of that list. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. I want to open the sermon this morning with a question. Do you feel alone? The huge issue within Western culture today, and it's something that we are not talking about, but it's loneliness. Charlotte Bronte said, the trouble is not that I'm single and likely to stay single, but that I'm lonely and likely to stay lonely. We are living in Western culture in what many researchers call a lifestyle that's known as crowded loneliness. And let me explain what I mean by that, crowded loneliness. They estimate, some researchers, that the average American family manages around 35 different relationships on a daily basis. So I want you to picture your life for a minute, your family's life, 35 separate relationships every day. So, of course, you have your immediate family, but then you have your extended family. Many of you are caring for a grandson or a, a parent. Uh, there's, of course, your coworkers. There are the people you interact with at school. There are the people that you interact with as neighbors. There are coaches, moms, moms groups, doctors, Starbucks baristas, uh, customers, landlords, business partners, and any and every person in your life that I didn't just mention. Add to those people around 180 or so shoreliners, and we're guaranteed to not have meaningful relationships at any deep level because we seem so maxed out and so burnt out and so filled in our schedules that we really can't have any, let alone maintenance in our relationships, but any deep, meaningful relationships. And what we find is that often we can be sitting in the middle of a crowd, maybe even today, and yet we're completely lonely. In Genesis, when God created all things, he said of all things, of creation, that it was very good. And yet there was one thing that was not very good, and that was the man, Adam, being alone. And so God created, we know this, Eve from his side and created someone who would come alongside Adam. She would be his alongside helper. And so Adam was in a state of loneliness, meaning he was incomplete until Eve was there. And so one of the myriad purposes of marriage is to dispel and to quiet loneliness. So if you're married today and you're still lonely, that's a problem. But see, one of the other major components or maybe fruitful blessings, side options, if you would, of the church, is that the church also uh, is to remind us that we're not isolated followers of Christ on our own trying to give God glory, where we just are in my own little pocket trying to give God glory. No, we are a unified community who's collectively been called out of darkness and into wonderful light, made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, And we've been set apart from the culture to, as a body, advance the gospel through holy living and through gospel proclamation. And yet, though that's true corporately, could it be said that within the church we're still lonely? As we open up to Galatians chapter 6 this morning, we come to our second to last study. And the last study will not be next week as we do our Christmas celebration, but the two weeks from today at our outdoor gathering. And I think we've really gained a lot of knowledge and understanding about grace and about law and how to live our lives that are truly free. Uh, But one of the marks of a legalist that we've not yet talked about is that a legalist does not truly live in gospel community. A true legalist does not embody gospel community. Now you might say, well, wait, hold on. Pastor, are you saying that the people who look really spiritual on the outside and yet are filled with legalism and law and lists that you're saying that they're not really a Christian? Well, slow down, McCarthy. I didn't say that. I'm not trying to out anyone as a non-Christian. But um, I would say that if someone is a legalist and they're not really living in true community, that means they're not really a part of the body of Christ. And if you're a Christian, you're going to live your Christianity in community. It's really impossible to have God as your father and not have the church as your mother. A lot of people say, I love God, I just can't stand his kids. 
And I understand if somewhere way down the road, some pastor or some group of Christians did a bad job of misrepresenting the gospel to you, and that made you pull back and say, I really don't want to have anything to do with that. But what I would argue is that just because someone misrepresented it doesn't mean that that's characteristic of what true gospel community looks like. Do you guys understand? In other words, if someone got up and missang the national anthem at the Super Bowl, right, we would all cringe and go, that's horrible, because they misinterpreted or they misrepresented it. And so if someone misrepresented a true gospel community, that doesn't mean we lean away from the church. It means we actually had a bad picture of it. So what we need to do is come back to the word of God and say, what does this look like? And if it looks like this, and I'm not living this way, the Bible's not going to change to fit me. I have to submit my life to the scripture. And you may be in your heart today thinking, you know what? Yeah, I got a problem with those people who don't go to church. Those people who, who got burned out and they just leave church and they claim to be Christians. They are so deceived. And I would agree with you. But guess what? People who refuse to be the church, even though they attend a church and claim to be Christians, are also deceived. Here's how I would say it. It's equally devastating to the church to have people separate themselves externally from the church. They don't go to church. But it's equally devastating as it is to have people segregate themselves internally within the church. And yet that's exactly what legalists have done. Legalists don't truly live in gospel community. Because as Paul wraps up his letter to this legalistically prone Christian group of churches in Galatia, we're going to see today what is the true remedy for legalism. We've already learned that it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We already know that in our justification. But now as we think about what it means to actually flesh this out in a gospel community, we have the theology in chapters 1 through 5, but now we get the practice in chapter 6. So this is one of my favorite um, passages, chapter 6 in all the Bible. And so what we're going to see today is not a string of separate commands. Maybe you read ahead this week and you thought, oh, these are a bunch of like disjointed separate commands in chapter 6 verses 1 through 10. Uh, but that's not true. See, what we're going to see today, we're going to study chapter 6 verses 1 through 10 with the mindset Okay, let's do this together. Of not being isolated and lonely, not a me focus, but rather we're going to look at this section of scripture written to an entire body of people, and that's how it was delivered. They read it publicly together. So let's look at it with a we focus. And what I want to do today is to build, we're going to call it a gospel community checklist. Remember, legalists love lists. So if you're a legalist here today, here's a list for you. Um, many legalists would say, listen, this is how I'm made righteous. You go, well, yeah, how are you made right with God? They'd say, well, here's how I'm made righteous. And they would not say, I'm made righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, meaning the forensic standing that I have before God has been obtained because of Christ, even though I was guilty in my sin. Now, because of Christ, I am right with God. And Jesus paid the penalty of my sin by becoming the propitiation. He was the atoning sacrifice. He died in my place. He's now justified me. And he's still in the process by his spirit of making me holy and sanctifying me. And I am complete only in him. They wouldn't say that. The legalists would say, well, I'm glad you asked. I would love to tell you how I'm made right with God. Here it is. You ready? And they'll pull the list out. And they'll say, well, I attend church this many times a week. Uh, I'm made, made right with God because I read my Bible every morning, and I read 12 chapters a minute. How many chapters did you read this morning? You're like, I kind of found the Bible verse app of the day verse, and that was good enough for me. And they're like, oh, psh, sorry to hear that. Uh, they would say, I went to the ladies social last night. Did you go to the, where were you? We missed you. We were praying for your soul last night as we were exchanging gifts. Or they would say, yeah, I made righteous with God. I made right with God because, you know, I, I'm a spiritual person and I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Or they'd say, well, you know, I pray for my kids on a regular basis. And I would say, yeah, I pray for my kids sometimes too, but it's not a prayer you sometimes want to hear <laughs> when I'm praying for my kids. Um, they might say, well, I wore a tie to church and I tucked my shirt and your shirt is untucked. And so you've got an issue with your sanctification. Uh, Ultimately, it's all I, 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 okay? We get it. Legalists like lists. So I have a list for you today. But this is not a, an I list. This is a gospel community checklist. To be fruitful in the body of Christ, Paul points out five things that are needed in true gospel community. Now, I'm borrowing this outline 
from Pastor David Platt. I don't know him personally, but he had a great job doing this. Um, I really couldn't improve on his outline, and he didn't return my calls, so I'm going to borrow it. Um, when you borrow, by the way, when you borrow from one person, it's plagiarism. But when you borrow from a lot of people, it's research. So um, that's what we're doing today. This list comes from his book called Christ-Centered Exposition, which is a great study on Galatians. Here's the five qualities of gospel community. Take a picture of this. Number one, gentle restoration, verse one. Number two, humble burden-bearing, verses two through five. Number three, generous sharing, verse six. There's personal holiness in verses seven and eight. And finally, practical goodness, verses 9 and 10. This is obviously under the assumption that it's gospel community, meaning we understand and we embody the gospel. That should go without saying as we kick this off. So that's our outline today. Let's walk through it, starting with the first one, gentle restoration. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, this is a hypothetical, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, this first verse is interesting. Uh, Last week, we unpacked a big list of sin uh, that are the works of the flesh and a lifestyle of someone who's not walking in the spirit. So Paul gives us this hypothetical moment where someone may not be marked by those sins, but maybe they fell into one of those sins. Maybe they slipped into temptation. So notice that he says, if anyone is caught. Would you circle that phrase in your Bible, your scripture journal? If anyone is caught... Okay, that's an interesting construction in the Greek. And a better translation, you could write the word surprised. It's a really good way to translate that. If anyone is surprised in sin. So this phrase points out our own responsibility for sin, but also it points out sin can be subtly tempting and it can trap you. So the people he's referring to here did not have this premeditated like, yeah, I'm going to sin this week. They found themselves caught, trapped in the middle of this moment. I didn't want to violate God's grace. I was duped into sinning. Now, most of us don't wake up and think, you know what, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sin today. I've got some plans later. I'm going to breakfast and then sin. We don't usually go into our day with that mindset. We usually have the earnest desire to please God and keep his commands and live a holy, exemplary life that glorifies and benefits uh, not only God but others. But the reality is we do sin. And, and Paul says sometimes we're surprised. We're, we're caught. And, and the idea here is a, a idea of a of a a trap that you stepped into and you didn't see it coming. And we didn't even realize we were like lambs being led away to a slaughter. Uh, We were seriously tempted and we didn't mean to. Now, when he says transgression here, it's sometimes translated fault. And that word is a softer word to our ears than transgression. If anyone is surprised by a fault that you fall into, uh, the word means a false step or a, a blunder. Okay, so what do we do in a gospel community, not when someone's living in habitual, unrepentant sin? There's a, there's a track for that. We're not talking about that. What happens when someone slips up and there's a blunder? They're caught in a sin they didn't anticipate. Well, we're told three things. I'm not going to put them on the screen, but first he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. Now, when we read that, I'm sure maybe, maybe I was the only one, but, you know, oh, you who are spiritual, well... If you need anyone, just call on me. I'm spiritual. So if you need someone, call on this guy, right? No. The idea here is the one walking by the Spirit. It doesn't mean like a, okay, there's a class of the church that's spiritual, and they're in that group, and then we're the unspiritual. No. The idea is the one walking in the Spirit. So it's not upper class. It's not the first class. It's those walking in the Spirit. So statistically, shouldn't that be every Christian? It should be. But sadly, it isn't. So first, you who are spiritual. The one walking in the spirit. Restore that, brother. That's on all of us. Secondly, he says we are to restore them gently. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Now, when someone sins, how we react to that is critical. A lot of times we can respond in a spirit of judgment and criticism. We go, oh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I saw that coming a long time ago, right? Or do we hear about it and we're sincerely grieved? We're sincerely broken. I'm always grieved when I hear that a Christian falls away or is failing in some way. I'm always grieved. When I hear about pastors falling, I don't get excited and repost and go, yeah, I knew that was coming. No, there's a sense, even no matter what background they have, a sense of sorrow, not cynicism. And it causes me as a pastor and our elders, it causes us to be grieved and to be a little bit afraid. It causes us to lean on one another and lean on the Holy Spirit. 
And so the question comes down to this, church. When someone sins, are you a policeman or are you a paramedic? You see, these are two different approaches to someone who is hurt. When a policeman comes on the scene, they are reactive, whereas a paramedic is proactive. Paramedics, when they arrive on the scene, they care for the health and the condition of the person, whereas policemen are concerned about the facts of the crime, right? Paramedics don't care what happened. They care about who it happened to and how to nurse those people back to health. Policemen aren't really concerned about the health. They want to make sure they have the details down to build a case and prosecute the guilty party. And so which one are we? We are to be obviously paramedics. So notice that Paul says we're to do this in a spirit of gentleness. The word there uh, is the same word to put a bone back in place. So do you want Wreck-It Ralph doing your bone surgery, right? Or do you want someone who's gentle and careful? Obviously, uh, the idea here is that church discipline should be redemptive, not vindictive. So we're not seeking to expose people, okay? That's talk show garbage. We're not here to rejoice when someone fails. We're here to help them. So the third thing is that he's, he tells us to carefully consider our own vulnerability to sin. Notice Paul says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so when we see someone sin in any way, we should honestly look in the mirror and say with sobriety this sentence. We should look at sin in someone's life and we should say, apart from the grace of God, so would I go. Apart from the grace of God. There's not a single list, item on that list from last week that any one of us couldn't necessarily fall into. So with sobriety, we say, apart from your grace, God, I'm not, I haven't arrived. I'm not this amazing stellar like example. I need Jesus daily. And so I'm going to continue to rest in you and trust you. So we as a church come alongside sinning. And that means knowing one another. And that means taking the time and the risk to be known. I'm so proud uh, of the men. There's been a few men who have come forward in the last few months and have admitted some deep sin that they've been hiding. And they've come forward and they've shared that. And I'm so proud of them uh, that they've come and they've said, I want to I reckon the old man down. I want to mortify the flesh. And they've asked for the elders to give them counsel and help. And they've uh, sought to be reconciled to the Lord and their wife. And it's an honor to gently restore a husband in his marriage or any repentant sinner in uh, the church community. It's an honor for us to do that. And so we should be those who come alongside and who care for those uh, people who are sinning. But secondly, this goes a little deeper. It goes beyond sin to every need. Look at the second idea, which is humble burden bearing, verses 2 through 5. Notice verse 2, he says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the same phrase, bear, that's used of Jesus carrying his cross. Same phrase. And then he says, fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? Uh, John's gospel that we studied this last year reveals it to us. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is not a new command to love. That's been there from the beginning. But notice that Jesus says, this is what's new. As I have loved you, so you love one another. That's the newness of this. That we are now to take the example of Christ, laying down his life, washing his disciples' feet in context, and we're to express that love to others. And so Paul is saying, hey, legalists, do you want to fulfill the law? Great. Here it is. It's easy. Just bear one another's burdens. Stop burdening people with the law and start helping shoulder some of the difficulties that people are going through. And so in a gospel community, we're to bear one another's burdens. So what does that mean? So a couple is struggling. We're to help shoulder that burden. There's a college student who's struggling. Maybe financially, we should have them over for dinner. I mean, they're hungry. Like, help a college student. We should have a fund for this. Help a college student out. Give to the college students, right? And we'll have you over for dinner. Um, There's a guy who's worshiping at the wrong altar. As men, we should say, bro, you're worshiping at the altar of sexual sin or the altar of pride or the altar of success. Bro, I want to come alongside you and, and get real, man, and challenge him and help him bear his burdens. So look at verse 3. He says, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. 
The Greek here reads like this. If anyone thinks he's a big number when he's actually a zero. I love that. If anyone thinks that he's like the man, he actually is a big zero. And so we can become self-deceived. We can escape this in verse 4. Look at verse 4. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So track with me. We're to test our own work, and then we can boast. Now, this is not a self-centered, prideful boasting. What does it mean? It means to stop comparing ourselves with others, but to compare ourselves with God's expectation on our lives. So when we realize that others need our help, that doesn't make us better than them. It makes us realize that we will, too, eventually need help at some point. And as we measure our lives not comparing them with others, but compared to the law of Christ of loving the body, then it keeps us humble. Uh, You guys follow me? There's a story of uh, Muhammad Ali. He was on a plane, and the flight attendant um, walked by him, and she was telling everyone to buckle up, and she saw his buckle was off, uh, his seatbelt. And so she instructed him to prepare for the takeoff and buckle your seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali shot back at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And then she replied, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) Buckle up. (laughs) So maybe that's you. Maybe you're like, you know what? No, these guys that are struggling, like I've never struggled in my life with sin ever. Well, be careful, right? First Corinthians reminds us, chapter 10, if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. So we have to have an honest assessment. Notice verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Well, wait a minute. Uh, now I'm confused. Uh, maybe you read through this text this week. And you're like, I, I'm hearing about burdens and loads, and I'm not getting it. I thought we're supposed to have others help us carry our burdens. But here in verse 5, we're told to bear our own load. Is Paul contradicting himself? Oh, the Bible's not true. I knew it. Well, not at all. Slow down. The word burden up in verse 2 is a description of a crushing weight that you put on a domestic pack animal. So this is the idea of something you could never carry on your own. You got to put it on a heavy burden carrying animal, a beast of burden that would carry that for you. There's no way you could lift that. You you, you would have to uh, have some other help. But um, Uh, metaphorically, he's kind of describing the oral traditions of the Judaizers. And that's a different word than load in verse 5. The word load in verse 5 is a word used for a soldier's backpack that was filled with needed equipment. Uh, And so don't miss what Paul is getting at, and don't be distracted by the screens blanking out, okay? When life is overwhelming, he's saying we need gospel community to come alongside us and help us bear some of the weight we're carrying alone. We need one another. But there are some things that are responsibilities that the church family should not have to shoulder. There is a difference between a burden and a load. You guys follow me? So David Platt said this. He said, do not treat loads as burdens and do not treat burdens as loads. Okay? I'm going to give you a few examples. And I want you to think about who on this list has a burden that the gospel community should help carry versus a load. So here's what we're going to do. I want you just to yell out burden. Burden is something you can't do alone. You need help. Load is something that you should probably start, you know, sucking up and dealing with. You need to handle this on your own. Okay, burden is too heavy for you. Load is on you. Are we good? Are we ready for this? Okay, please don't yell out coffee. Okay, we all know that's a burden uh, that you need. But here's, here's an example Uh, First one, a man spent all his money on beer, cigarettes, and lottery tickets, but he refuses to look for a job, and he asks you for money. Okay, okay, (laughs) that is uh, your opinion, a load, okay. Uh, Secondly, a guy in his 20s stays up late playing video games. He wants you to call him every morning so he doesn't sleep in and get fired from his job. Is that a burden he needs your help with, or is that a load he needs to be responsible for? Okay. Uh, How about someone's like, I'm in my 20s. Help me out. Okay. All right. A dad is overworked and needs a night to relax at home, so he asks you to take his kids to their baseball game for him. Is that a burden you need to help someone with, or is that a load that he needs to handle on his own? All right. How about these? Here's a couple more. A married couple has three kids, and sadly, one day there's an accident, and the wife dies in a car wreck. The father is unable to provide for his family now. Is that a burden or a load? Okay. It's a burden. Uh, How about this one? An older widow gets sick and needs help around her house a few days a week, including picking up groceries from time to time. Burden. How about this? A husband leaves his wife for another woman and abandons her and the five kids. 
The wife needs help with meals, transportation, and living expenses. That'd be a burden. Now, hopefully you agree the first three are loads. Those, you should be responsible uh, to take care of yourself and your family. There are personal, financial, uh, time, fitness, vocation, relationship, um, things that you need, need to handle. You need to have those responsibilities. So that, listen, the elders are not going to give you a wake-up call to remind you that church is today. All right, hey, just so you know, brother, church is this morning. I hope to see you there. I'm not going to do that. We're not going to wake you up to get you on time. That's a load. You need to wake up. The church is not going to um, do that. We might challenge you and, and direct you to be more responsible, but the gospel community is not responsible to carry loads. But when there's a burden, something beyond your, your ability, then the church is called to love and to help one another. And at Shoreline, we have congregational care that we call, underneath the ministry, we call SOS. SOS is one of our most important ministries. If you don't know, it's a ministry where we love and we serve our church family in practical ways. Lately, all y'all are having babies, so there, are, there is like food going everywhere. We're, we're doing meal trains. Some of you have had to move, so we'll, we'll move. Uh, some people have had very practical needs that we come alongside and help. And Ultimately, that's the burden that we come alongside help. But there's even deeper than practical burdens. There's spiritual burdens. And all of us, as the church, should be the SOS team. It should, we should have everyone signed up on the SOS team. So if you haven't signed up yet, hello card. Go ahead and fill that out. Let us know, uh, and we'll call on you. But all of us are to be those who help shoulder the burdens. Now, starting in verse 6, Paul changes gears. And he uses the analogy of taking some seeds and planting them and then eventually reaping a harvest. And so we come to the third aspect of gospel community, number three, generous sharing. Look at verse six. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I used to think that this verse meant that if you receive some sort of encouragement from a sermon, that you are to go back and tell the pastor or the person who taught you and say, thank you, pastor, that was a great sermon. I used to think that. Oh, if you learn something, you share that. But that's not what the original language means. And I've challenged you. Some of you say, like, hey, great sermon. At the end, I'll stand out front and just, like, greet people as they leave. Great sermon. I always go, what was great? What was great about it? And I'd rather hear that Jesus is great, the gospel is great, rather than you're great. You guys know that, just as an aside. But the word for share here is a verb form of the word koinonia. The word koinonia of course, means the fellowship that we have as we share all things in Christ in common. So let me unpack this for a minute. The early church was not an isolated community of believers who all showed up on the same day every week to worship God, but they never knew each other outside of the four walls of the colonnade of Solomon. And then as soon as they dismissed, they all lived separate, disjointed lives all over Judea in private. Okay, that's not the idea. They were intimately involved in one another's lives to the point that they shared, listen, even their property, even their real estate, their goods, their food, their resources with one another. Now, this is not, I have to be, I always have to clarify this. This is not communism where we take all of our resources and we bring it in in the storeroom and then we add it all up and then we divvy it all out equally so everyone has an equal share. That's not the idea. That's not, it's not communism, it's community where no one goes without, no one is excluded or alone. So some have more resources, and they're going to make sure that people who don't have resources are helped. Uh, and they willingly and joyfully share their excess with someone who doesn't have it. And so that's what we're to be in the church. So in this case, Paul is talking about here is speaking about supporting the teachers of a church, the elders. So in gospel community, what, the way it's supposed to work is that the elders are sharing the spiritual resources of the word of God with the body, and the body in turn helps share material resources to help support the elders. Now you can, you can tell right now I have a conflict of interest because I'm an elder. And so how do I teach this without seeming like I'm in the way? So I should have someone come up and teach this verse, but what, whatever my position is doesn't negate what the word says, right? And so the idea here is that it's not a payment it's sharing. Now, much of this idea has been written about in the New Testament. And, and I'm so thankful for the support and the sharing that you do in this church to allow our elders um, to do the work that they do. Even though I'm the only really staff elder that's paid, our other elders work full-time uh, and sometimes more than full-time. But notice on the screen what we're to do with those who are elders who teach 
consistently. He says, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not, or do not we even more? And then a similar passage in 1 Timothy 5, writing to an elder, Timothy, Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. In other words, the honor of being the leader as well as support, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So in the law, it was explained here that you leave the the ox unmuzzled as it's treading the grain. Why do you do that? So that the ox could eat on the field that it's working on. And so the grain that it was treading was helping supply sustenance to the ox itself. It would kind of be cruel to put a muzzle on him. As he's doing that work, like, you can't eat right now. So it would weaken him, whereas taking off the muzzle allows him to partake of some of the blessing. And so the idea here that Paul's getting at is if a pastor elder is preaching and teaching in a full-time capacity, then they should be fully supported by their gospel community. And I think there's a strong case for smaller churches uh, who can't yet fully support their pastors to at least come alongside him and uh, as he's working bivocationally, meaning he works a full-time job outside of the church, they should help support him as much as they can and get him full-time as much as they can. But don't be mistaken, there's no such thing as a part-time pastor. There's no such thing. He might supplement his income part-time from the church, but pastoral work is a labor of love, but it's still labor. And in the same way it's cruel to muzzle an ox, Uh, it's cruel to not support those who do the hard work of preaching and teaching within the gospel community. And we have a wonderful support system here at Shoreline. So we are doing well there. But do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying if you benefit from the word of God as it is taught in a gospel community, you have a responsibility to share back a portion of your material wealth and blessing. Now, I'm shocked when I hear that people don't give any portion of their income at all unto the Lord in the local church. Like nothing, not even five bucks, nothing. And I understand times are tough, but I would say if you're not giving even a little percentage of your income, then something deeper is going on. Jesus said it best in Matthew 6, 21. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so this, Paul is reflecting on a beautiful partnership where the pastor elders can commit their lives to ministering the word of God to the people of God, and the people of God can commit their lives to building up the community and caring for the practical needs uh, through their generosity. Some people say, well, what's that, what percentage should I give? Is it 10%? Uh, should I give 10%? And, and some people would say, like, you know, you're supposed to give um, 10% of that income. Uh, of your income to the church, and I think that's ridiculous. At Shoreline, we believe in 40%, so um, that is clearly what you're to give. But obviously, that's between you and the Lord. We're not tracking it. We don't go, hey, I know your salary, and that's how much you gave last week. Let's talk. Like, your soul's in trouble. It's, we, we have to ultimately know that's cheerful, joyful. It's, it's out of the abundance of what God has done for us in Christ. Now, if you thought that was invasive, <laughs> and that was hard to teach, Paul gets more meddlesome. He goes further. Look at the fourth aspect of gospel community. Number four, personal holiness. Look at what he says in verses seven and eight. Do not be deceived. He just mentioned self-deception. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Wow. Now, you, if you missed last week, we covered the flesh versus the spirit. You've got to go back and listen to that if you missed it. Uh, Paul there shows the spirit and the flesh, and here he brings it home to talk about this concept of reaping and sowing. We aren't generally an agrarian society. Chances are this morning you did not check on the seeds that you planted last week in your yard. Maybe that's you. Uh, but, because uh, we don't do that. We don't plant food in the backyard. We, what do we do? We, we, if we want a loaf of bread, we go to Publix. If we want a pallet of bread, we go to Costco, right? And so the agrarian concept is not something we're used to, but here Paul makes it a spiritual concept, okay? He's saying whatever seed you sow into the ground will be what you reap. John MacArthur said it this way, the Christian has only two fields in which he can sow, that of his own flesh and that of the spirit. 
So Paul says, don't be deceived. If you sow orange seeds, don't be surprised when an apple tree shows up. If you plant a garden of tomatoes, don't go looking for pumpkins. If you sow to your flesh, you can expect destruction. But if you sow to the Spirit, you can expect eternal life. So don't give up. Don't carry your burden alone. Be transparent. Be real. Take off the mask. Let people know that you need help and allow them to bear that burden with you and help restore you. We desperately need in the body of Christ to sow to the Spirit. We are so prone to plant our seeds in the flesh. And yet then we expect to be spiritual. We expect to have a healthy marriage or a fruitful impact among lost people when we've been walking in carnality. Listen, true gospel community requires us to see that your sin, that my sin, doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just affect me. It affects everyone. That struggle that you have, brother, is not a personal struggle. That jealousy issue, sister, that you have is not a personal little issue. It's a part of our church body's struggle corporately. And holiness, he says, is a harvest. John Stott says this. This is heavy. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge or nurse a grievance or entertain a pure fantasy or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we can resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we consume pornography, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. And Paul says God is not mocked. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your status is, what your net worth is. The principle of reaping and sowing is no respecter of persons. Personal holiness affects the church community because a little leaven leavens the entire lump. So one person's laziness or comfort can easily be picked up by other people within the church. It reaps a community harvest. You guys follow me? Will you permit me to get a little personal? Can I get personal here? Nod your heads if I can get personal. All right, one little aspect of the flesh can affect all of the body. So you decide to sleep in a little bit longer on Sunday. Hmm. Rather than waking up early, you've got the text on Friday night or Saturday. You know what songs we're going to be singing, preparing your heart, reading the text, listening to the worship songs we're going to sing, orienting your heart to the gospel, vanquishing your pride, serving your family or the community and being willing to get up and be here ready to go. What do we do? Uh, We bust out of bed, stressed out and contemplating, maybe I should just stay in bed a little bit longer. And you know what? They have a Facebook Live. I think I'm going to watch the Facebook Live from the comfort of my bed this morning. And you know what? I'm going for it. There's ice cream in the fridge. I'm just going to go to town. Okay. And what happens, even though we have a Facebook Live, that's for sick traveling or working people. But what seems like a small thing, walking in um, during, you know, the second, third, fourth, or greeting time, second, third, or fourth song, that doesn't seem to affect anyone else. But, see, that can't be further from the truth. When we started this morning, we looked around and we thought we missed the rapture this morning. We were looking around like, what happened? (laughs) Where is everyone? I'm not speaking to you specifically if you came in late today. But I'm saying there's an easy pattern where we just begin to go, you know what? I'm just going to take care of my comfort. Uh, Or it it might not be that. Maybe it's something like, you know, I'm not really going to get committed to this church family. I'm just going to kind of lean back and kind of do my own thing. And see, that begins to trigger other people to go, well, I don't need to serve either. You know, I've got a busy schedule as well. And and so, honestly, it begins to interact uh, everyone. So in a gospel, and that's just one example. I'm just throwing that out there. But in a gospel community, we reap what we collectively sow. And so if we're going to sow to the flesh, we're going to reap from the flesh. I want a church community that is reaping the Spirit's work in our lives and in our community, don't you? I want to see us sow to the Spirit and then reap what God has for us. So look at this fifth and final aspect to our gospel community. The fifth one is practical goodness. Verses 9 and 10, he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, that phrase, grow weary, was used in the first century to describe a woman who was having labor pains. She was delivering a baby. 
In that moment, she's suffering, she's waiting, and in her excruciating pain, she knows something good is coming, but not yet. She has something to look forward to, and some of you just had birth, just gave birth to children, and you knew that moment was difficult, but man, I'm about to enjoy the pain of this waiting, but not yet. And often there's a long time between sowing and reaping. And some are tempted in those waiting years or waiting moments, they start thinking, you know, this isn't worth it. Or I should just give up. But see, verse 9 exhorts us, don't grow weary in doing good. Because there's a season to plant and there's a season to harvest. But notice how verse 10 connects all of this. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. So as we have opportunity, do good to everyone. But notice he says, start first with the household of faith. In other words, there's a responsibility first The priority is to the gospel community. Paul calls the church the household. So it's a Dave Ramsey concept. concept. You do the four walls first. You take care of the four walls first, then the other spending. And so in the church, we're to take care of our needs first, then go to our community. That's the priority. So practical goodness begins first and foremost right here in this fellowship. Listen, this church, the church, is not one of many groups that you simply identify with or affiliate with. It's not like, okay, well, yeah, I'm a part of the Kiwanis Club, and I'm part of the Runners Club, I'm a member of the Country Club, I'm a member of the Cyclist Group, oh, and I go to Shoreline. That should not be the idea. This is your tribe. This is your family. So how do we care for ourselves and not care, right, just for ourselves and not for our family? How can we do good to the unbelieving community around us, which is important, but at the cost of our own church community. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, do good to all, but begin with the house of God. Begin with the family. I mean, we all see the hypocrisy if someone visits kids in the inner city to feed them and yet comes home to a family of starving children. We see that, right? And so we must make the church family our priority and do good here. And then when the body's cared for, then we go outside. And it's not, okay, we, we have to wait until we go out. We do it together, but we make sure that our church family's cared for. So as we apply this passage of Scripture, there's a lot of ways that we can do this. We can just dismiss and go, that was rough. Uh, Or we could um, realize that the reason that many of us are isolated or lonely or discouraged or frustrated is because we keep doing the opposite of that list. Let me explain this. We've just looked at five aspects of gospel community, but there's an opposite to true gospel community. Instead of gospel community, we're going to call it iChurch. Okay, you ready for this? We're going to call it iChurch. So here's the opposite of these five, and we're going to take them one by one on the screen. At iChurch, gentle restoration becomes harsh neglect. Becomes harsh neglect. So rather than gently restoring someone, when someone sins at iChurch, here's what happens. We either neglect them or we expose them. One of those is passive-aggressive. The other is directly aggressive. Both of them are wrong. So people are left to themselves, neglected to struggle through their sin, or they're gossiped about or slandered to the entire congregation. It kind of reminds me of the three pastors who went fishing. They're sitting in a boat, and the one pastor casts his line and goes, guys, can you pray for me? I'm struggling with lust. And uh, the guys were like, yeah, we'll be praying for you. And then the second guy casts his line and goes, hey, pray for me, guys. Actually, I'm being tempted to gamble. Online gambling, I'm thinking of falling into. So pray for me. Well, the third guy says, Hey, I'm going to paddle back to shore. Pray for me. My struggle is gossip, and I can't wait to get out of this boat and tell everybody what you guys are struggling with. <laughs> Harsh neglect rather than gentle restoration. Secondly, if our gospel community turns into iChurch, then humble burden bearing morphs into proud comparison. We begin to see sin in others and burden in others that we don't see ourselves capable of. And this pride makes us begin to compare ourselves with others. We begin to look down on them rather than help shoulder their burdens. Rather than making sacrifices to help come alongside them at our own expense, we get prideful, we hold back. And we wonder, how can all these people struggle so much in comparison to me because I'm awesome? And we don't let our lives become messy Because they do become messy when we include others and help others. Because that weighs too much. That means if the burden on someone weighs 100 pounds and we carry the other half, that means we have to carry 50 pounds. And that costs us something. And so 
we don't want to invite 50 pounds of burden into our lives. But what's the alternative? The alternative is letting that person be crushed under the weight as they do life alone. Proud comparison. Thirdly, I church means we take generous sharing and it turns into stingy isolationism. Stingy isolationism. So we're not about to start sharing our lives with each other, so we cut ourselves off. We keep our schedules to ourselves. We keep our gifts and abilities to ourselves, even our material resources to focus on caring for our own priorities. We won't open our home up for others. We don't invite people in for friendship and fellowship. And we certainly don't give financially to help support the preaching and teaching ministry of the church's elders that we're primarily fed by. And so this isolationism causes us to be disconnected from the body, which means we begin to sow to our flesh and not the spirit, and eventually we reap destruction. Even if we took that money and invested it in retirement and made millions on it, it's still sowing to the flesh because we've cut ourselves off from the body. Generous sharing turns into stingy isolationism. But that means, fourthly, that at iChurch, personal holiness, it devolves into sinful leaven. So we take this sinful mindset selfishly to its logical conclusion, and we start looking at the church critically. And rather than seeing the needs that she has, we criticize her for lacking what we want. And we often have within the church the very resource we need. And that begins to leaven through the entire church. And, and we truly corporately reap what we've corporately sown. But that means finally at iChurch, practical goodness to care for each other and do good to each other and to our community, that morphs into critical consumerism. So what happens is we distort into what's called a church shopper. You guys know the phrase church shopper should be a contradiction in terms. We are a family. Paul calls them brothers 10 times in six chapters. The last time I checked, you don't shop for people at the store, you shop for items. You go to the store, you shop for an item that you use to your own advantage as a consumer. But no one shops online for family members, right? So what happens is we end up becoming people who solely view a church based on what it offers us as a consumer, not what we can offer it, not how we can be connected to people, how we lay down our lives and sacrificially serve. And we know this, family, when you guys have family get-togethers, it's a little bit obligatory, isn't it? You're like, oh gosh, we have to, uncle so-and-so is going to be there. We have to go though, right? You know this. Am I the only one? Okay, hopefully my family's not watching this live, but there are those moments where you have to go hang out with family. And you go and you show up and you're like, okay, this was fun said no one ever. And, and, and so there you are in that family gathering and it's people, your family knows you and so they, they bait you a little bit and they're messing with you and you're like, oh, that was rough. Why did we bring up politics? That was such a bad idea. And you kind of get through it. But at the end of the day, there's that blood, right? And you're still connected together. That's a horrible example, right? So I don't even know where I'm going with this. It's not in my notes, so fail. But ultimately, the church family, I've said this before, the church family description is beautiful irritation. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. When we come together in the church family, we look around and we're like, yep, there's a lot of uncles here that I would not necessarily want to hang out with. But, man, it's so good for us to be together. And there's a blood that unifies us deeper than your family's blood. It's the blood of Christ, right? So, man, it's beautiful and it's irritating, but it's a beautiful irritation because it's the community of myriad of backgrounds and, and different people groups that God has brought together in Christ. And so the legalist has no idea what true, connected gospel community looks like because they've never confessed their sin to another person. They've never reached into their weekly schedule or into their wallet to help contribute, right? They don't build others up or do good to others because they're con so consumed with how good they're doing personally. But I'm here to tell you that I church is a dead church. It's a dead church. One person said this, the church has failed to tell me that I'm a sinner. The church has failed to deal with me as a lost individual. The church has failed to offer me salvation in Jesus Christ alone. The church has failed to tell me of the horrible consequences of sin, the certainty of hell, and the fact that Jesus Christ alone can save. We need more of the last judgment and less of the golden rule, more of the living God and the living devil as well, more of a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. The church must bring me not a message of cultivation, but of rebirth. I might fail that kind of church, but that kind of church will not fail me. Amen? So as we close, I want to invite our worship team forward.
and put those two lists on the screen. Which of these lists marks our lives or marks our church? Which of these is the way of Jesus? May we be a true gospel community. This is a message I need to hear. I need to be confronted with. We all need it. We need to submit to the Holy Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And maybe what will happen is that we'll find in a crowd that we're not alone. That we've actually never been alone. We've just not taken the time to make ourselves known. And we've not taken the time to trust in the word of God and the spirit of God to make us more like Jesus. And so my prayer is that we would be changed, that we would submit our lives to the work of God in Christ. Amen? Let's bow our heads together. And I'm going to pray a prayer for us this morning called Paradoxes. It's from the Valley of Vision, Puritan Prayers. Praying for our church this morning, this prayer. O changeless God, under the conviction of thy spirit, I learned that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O wretched man that I am. O Lord, I have a wild heart, and I cannot stand before thee. I'm like a bird before a man. How little I love thy truth and ways. I neglect prayer by thinking I've prayed enough and earnestly, by knowing thou hast saved my soul. Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tell, tells his lusts that Christ's blood cleanseth them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell for he's saved, who loves evangelical preaching churches, Christians, but lives a life of unholiness. My mind is a bucket without a bottom, with no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, for the Lord's church, ever learning but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well, but never holding water. My conscience is without conviction or contrition, with nothing to repent of. My will is without power of decision or resolution. My heart is without affection and full of leaks. My memory has no retention, so I forget easily the lessons learned, and thy truth seep away. Oh God, give me a broken heart that yet carries home the water of grace. And Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that we would be knocked down from our lofty place, that we would see the need to lay down our lives for one another because you lay down your life for us. So grant us that vision, Lord, that you would be our vision this morning as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, Be Thou My Vision. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.